Good morning. We're going to get started if you want to find your seats. I'll just apologize to all of you Colts fans. It was a rough one last night if you stayed up to watch the guy drop the pass. But just keep in mind, as a pastor once told me after his team lost a football game, but Marshall, Jesus is still Lord. So it's all perspective, you know, these sports things that we care about so much, they are temporary. You're going to see today that our eyes should be on the eternal. And if we do that, there's nothing but hope and nothing but encouragement for the believer. That's just the way to look at it. So we look at these trivial things and, you know, the wins and the losses of very temporary games and sports and even things that maybe seem more important like jobs and and uh, trips and houses and cars, and these things are all temporary as well. So as we think about that, that should help us get a better perspective on today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for all of the hope that we do have. We know that that hope is rooted in your Son and his finished work on the cross. That hope revolves around grace, grace that is undeserved, grace that is unearned, Grace that comes because of your great love for us. And even though we were sinners, even though we were not pursuing you, even though we were far away and we were ensnared by the enemy and, and we were doing the things that we wanted to do by our sin nature, even, even so, you chose in your incredible love and mercy, forbearance and, and your grace to save us. And all of those things excite us and they get us motivated to do your work and I pray that we don't uh, tamper those down that we don't try to somehow filter that that divine passion that can come from this incredible hope that we have and this incredible thing that happened because of the gospel because of the salvation but that we let it flow out of us so that the world around us can see that we're different that we live with this hope that drives us to do the things that you've called us to do. I pray that we see that in Scripture today, that we see that in, in, uh, in the hope that we have and what's in our future. We thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Turn to Revelation chapter 4, where we left off last week. And you'll notice I put the same, I had this intro slide in last week because this is, I told you we were going to kind of just stay here for a second. And then honestly, my intention is to potentially, believe it or not, uh, get through chapter 4 next week, and, and you say, I, I, I go with the knot. I don't believe it. But who knows? I want you to look at this, a look into our future. I don't know that I highlighted that last week, but, but I did mention something about something I skipped. I skipped verse 4. I reread it, but I didn't teach on verse 4 last week. And I want you to understand that I believe, as we're looking at this, this is something, this is a scene that is, as I mentioned last week, going to be a deja vu all over again when you see it and you're living in it and it happens and you're going to remember that God had already taught us and showed us this event, this scene. And I think we're going to see that very clearly today. Quick review here of where we were or what we talked about, uh, if my slide wants to advance for me. There it is. Remember the definition of our word revelation, that it's an unveiling, it's an opening up, it's something that was covered that is now exposed, that we can now see. And uh, so much of the scriptures, as, I, as we talked about last week, are like that. 
that have been revealed to us that we can now see. And I, I think I also articulated to you that in truth, every believer in here has had, had, has had a, a apocalypsis happen to them when the Holy Spirit came into you. Because now you can see and now you can understand. What was, now, what was once clouded, what was not understood, is now spiritually discerned by you. So there's, there's an element of that, even built in within the gospel, that this was a mystery. The church itself, what we are doing here, was a mystery before the Lord came and changed everything for us. So that's what this book is. It's, it's unveiling things that were previously not seen or previously not understood as much. And then we went through this kind of basic structure of, of chapter 1, 2, and 3, and then 4 through 22, and that's the section we're in here, this metatauta after these things. And that is the instruction that, that John was given by God Almighty through this angel, through Jesus himself, and that we're now in this section of the after these things. And so if we look at Revelation 4.1 again, and you're, you're there, so for Revelation 4.1, if you'll read this again, it says, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The first voice, which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this, after these things. So we have that, that phrase twice to tell us we are now in this section. So I don't want to re-teach all of that, but it's been a few weeks, so just to kind of give you an understanding of where we were with this. And then what we looked at last time was the scene in heaven. So as we quickly look at this again, looking at verse 2, it says, at once, immediately, this happened immediately. I'm going to come back to this because this is a typology of what we're going to look at today in part. This isn't about us. This is John that this is happening to. This is not the church. However, there's some, there's some comparisons, but immediately what happens I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. So he sees a throne, and we talked about what that throne looked like. We looked at the comparisons with what Ezekiel saw and Isaiah saw, what Daniel sees, what even potentially, well, not potentially, what Paul saw but didn't really write about. So he saw the throne in heaven and the one seated on the throne, and who was there? So we see this is very clearly given to us throughout Scripture. We talked about that last time. Verse 3. He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow. We talked about those colors. We talked about what the rainbow maybe signifies and, and what those other colors signify and these gems signify. won't reteach this, but just to get us back in line. And it says, and had the appearance of an emerald. But then verse 4. We get to verse 4, and we talked about, well, what was on the throne? What was the scene look like? What was around the throne? What was before the throne? But then... Who was there? And this is the part we really didn't focus on. So who is seated around the throne? Now before I jump into this, I want to remind you of what I mentioned before. This scene is giving us an idea of who it is that this judgment that's coming on the world, who it is that is administering it and why he's worthy of it. What we have a scene here in chapter 4 and 5 is where the judgment's coming from, why he's deserving of it, why he can do this, why he has the right, is what I mentioned before. So kind of keep that in your mind, although we're going to see that there today the focus that I'm going to put on is what Christ does for the church, these 24 elders, I want you to understand this isn't about us, it's about him and his glory. As a matter of fact, anything I teach here, any time I open up this book and you do the same, 
It isn't about you and me. We're affected. There's no doubt about it. We're involved because he loves us and, and we were made in his image. And, and he always had the plan to redeem his, his beloved, his church. But it's for his glory. Never forget that. It, and I, I don't think a revelation is going to let you forget it. If we read this book correctly and we read it honestly, we won't forget it. But we do have a tendency as selfish sinners to try to bring it right back to us. I, I say all of that because you're going to see a lot of things that are happening to us, the church, today, which, which are tremendous and amazing, supernatural, awesome, and what we are hoping for, but it's also for his glory. Okay, so just keep that in mind as we go forward. Let's reread verse 4, what we see seated around the throne. Verse 4, and I'll bring it up on the screen, but you have it in front of you as well. It says, around the throne were 24 thrones, seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Okay, so we have some description of these elders. Now, I'm going to have you skip ahead to chapter 5 here real quick. Now, we'll come back around to this later, of course, when we get there. But the 24 elders that are mentioned here, and we have some elements that I'm going to break down for us here in a moment, they're mentioned in the next chapter. So if you go to chapter 5, and I'll bring this up on the screen as well. It's verse 8. But it's always good to look at it in your own Bible that you're using at home every day, as Pastor James mentioned to us last week. We want to be in the Word, and that's how we get renewed, and that's where God teaches us and talks to us. But here's what it says in chapter, chapter 5, verse 8, starting at verse 8. Here's what it says. And these 24 elders are mentioned. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, we'll talk about them later, 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. That's Christ each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And here's the important part. Here's what they sing. It says, and they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you, speaking to the Lamb, singing to the Lamb, to take the scroll. We'll talk about that scroll and, and what it means and the significance of it later. And to open its seals, you were slain, this is Jesus, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So we see them saying something here, singing something here to the lamb who was slain. And why was he slain? Because he wanted to ransom people from all over the world. Not just Jews. It's not specifically Jews here. It's Jews and Gentiles alike. Notice, goes to the trouble of telling us tribe, language, people, nation. So you don't miss it. That Jesus died because he loved the world. And, and this is available to, to his people all over the world that he is ransoming, saving, redeeming. And notice it mentions that they're going to, he made them into a kingdom and priests. Very interesting to our guide. So let's break this down here. What do we see out of these 24 elders? Well, there are 24 th thrones and 24 elders. Now, it's important here, they're seated on thrones. Keep these things in mind as I break down some of the comparisons. They're seated on thrones. What are they wearing? They're wearing white garments. What do they have on their heads? Golden crowns on their heads. And then we just read that they sing a new song, and what do they sing about? Redemption, being ransomed. And, and they, they make mention of the world, not just Jewish believers, but believers throughout the world. And they, they talk about being priests, and they talk about reigning on earth with Christ. Are you starting to formulate potentially what we're looking at here? 
So we've got these 24, we've got what they're wearing, where they're seated, what they're doing, what they're saying. Let's look at the church. Even from, even from the book of Revelation, we have some connections. In chapter 2, verse 10, remember, these churches that were real churches, but a nice microcosm of how the church is today, there were things mentioned about the churches, promises to the churches, challenges and convictions that we should have as churches, but Notice some of the things, chapter 2, that they're crowned, chapter 3, that they are clothed in white garments, and we know about the ransom, we see that all throughout scripture, the idea of redemption of the church, seated on thrones, chapter 3, and by the way, not just seated on thrones, but reigning with Christ, okay, so thrones indicating that there is some sort of a leadership there, that we will reign with Christ, and we don't just find that, by the way, in Revelation, we, again, see that through the epistles. Paul talks about this as well. Even the judgment of angels, Paul talks about. Pretty incredible. We know that as the church is structured today in the church age, that it is led by elders. And that particular same exact Greek word is used here, that they are called elders in our church leadership. We see that throughout Scripture. We just mentioned, even from, even from Revelation, that we see in chapter 5 that there's a priesthood, but it's mentioned in chapter 1 by John, and we see Peter saying the same thing, same Greek word about priests. And then an interesting little connection I'll try to make here that we're also mentioned as lampstands, and you'll see the connection to that here in just a moment. But let's take a look at this. Why the 24? Because that might be catching you here a little bit. You're already seeing where I'm going with this. You're seeing that I believe that the 24 elders are representative of the church, but that number 24 gets people. I've heard a lot of weird descriptions of this, by the way. And I shouldn't say weird because, you know, maybe they're right. I don't think so, but here's one of them. That the 12, or the 24, is a division of two 12s. That the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles connecting the Old Testament to the New Testament, and that's the 24. It could be. I don't see a division problem in this particular passage that tells us to divide it. I've heard that. I've heard others say that 24 is representation of, of, uh, of Christ's perfection, that it's kind of a, some sort of a, a, a new version of seven, because seven is the complete number. I don't know where they come up with that, but I've heard somebody describe that before, that these 24 elders are specific 24 beings that were created, that God created just for this. We have no defense for that anywhere else. My opinion is it comes from this. Because of the priesthood and what they sing, and they talk about the idea of priesthood, here's where we do see 24 in the Bible. And it's when David divided the priestly line into 24 divisions. Now, we're not going to read all these people's names. You feel free to do that as you walk through the Bible this year, and, and you're going to get to places like this where you've got all kinds of names that you'll never remember again. But I want you to notice there's specific names mentioned, and they're dividing, David is dividing them into 24 groups. They are all part of this priestly line. But when we get to it, it says the 24th, and then we get to Maziah, and that is the 24 divisions. And they, were, they had duties, their service, and they come to the house of the Lord, and they worship, and they lead worship, and they, they're supposed to take these procedures, and they, they, they walk through the, the, what the, the instructions from the Word of God for what a priest should do. And so when we go forward, and we see that we see there's the, the idea that we see in the song that they're singing that they're priests. In Revelation 1, we see this. He's made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. 
He's made that to us. We are now priests. What does Peter say? You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But notice, a people for his own possession that you would proclaim the excellencies of him. You're, you're doing a job constructed in Scripture as to what to do, and it's very similar. What I think these 24 are is it's representative of the church. It's not the whole church, but it's a, it's a representative of the church, and it's, it's talking about, not, we'll all be there. We'll all be there. This is just signifying an indication that this is the church, and we are now in this priestly line because God has done that to us. We didn't do it. You didn't earn it. Much like the Old Testament priest didn't earn it either, God decided it. He proclaimed it. This is who they would be. But he divided them into 24 sections, and I believe that's the connection. The fact that they're singing about it, that we see it from John, we see it from Peter, I think that's a pretty good connection as to what we're dealing with here. This is my opinion only. I'm just telling you what I think it is. And why I think it's important, especially when we consider this, is that they're already in heaven. Okay. Now, I, I want you to understand that that this is an important thing. They also mentioned here, Paul, or John also mentions that they're called lampstands. That specifically, it's defined for us that w- these churches are the lampstands. Look at Revelation 4, which we're still at, verse 5. Last week I mentioned that connection of the Holy Spirit, right? Verse 5, from the throne, we talked about what was coming out of the throne last week. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, why is that? Does that matter? Lampstands and spirits of God. Well, we know the Holy Spirit's there. And we also know that the Holy Spirit is here now amongst us. And where is he? He's in you. And you're a lampstand. And a torch needs a lampstand. And so we're there. And the Holy Spirit is there. And remember, we talked about that idea of the seven and how here on earth, what does the church do? Well, we, we do our work, but we don't do it very well, do we? We grieve the Holy Spirit. We, we oftentimes reject what he's telling us. We, we push down the conviction. We don't listen to it. We become calloused, although he's there within us. We're not doing everything he wants us to do. And if you are, I'd love to meet you and get some instruction from you. Because I don't do that every day. But when we're there and we're glorified, we're not grieving him anymore. We're doing exactly what he wants. And and it's perfected. So that idea of seven, we talked about that last week. So that's just a side note that lampstands are mentioned. We're mentioned at lampstands. And just interesting, the seven spirits of God are torches. A torch needs a lampstand. So side note on that. Here's Here's the issue today. How did we get there? If this is the church, and I believe that it is, I believe it's representative of the church, How did we get there? And I'll tell you how I think we got there. It's the rapture of the church. That's how we got there. So if we look at this particular word rapture, and I'm already 18 minutes in, this word rapture has a lot of uh, um, debate. And, And the first debate you'll hear, which I want you to throw out of your mind, is that the rapture won't happen because the word rapture is not in the Bible. And that's just ignorance. I'm going to tell you right off the bat, that's just, they've heard it, so they say it and they repeat it. It's because you're not looking at a Latin Bible. That's the reason it's not in there. Because we read English, and the word rapture is not found in there because it's not an English word. We've turned a Latin word, which is a derivative of the Greek word, in, into this idea. So here's the deal. The Greek word that you would, if you were to read a Greek version of this, 
and we look at some of the passages from 1 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, even John 14, but specifically from 1 Thessalonians, you'd see the word harpazo, and that is a snatching away or a taking away. As a matter of fact, we see it in other places too. We mentioned that it's even talked about with what happened to Paul and what happens to John. But this snatching away, in the Latin, medieval Latin Bible, that word is translated raptura, that same idea, seizure or kidnapping or snatching away. And in our Bible, it's just called the catching away, caught away, to be snatched away. You're going to see that today. It's a phrase that we've condensed into a one-word thing. So don't listen to that argument, well, the rapture's not going to happen because it's not in the Bible. Yes, it is. We just are reading an English Bible. Everybody kind of with me on that? Understand what we're dealing with here? So let's take a look at this. Now, I told you last week, I've got even more detailed charts. Now, this is a detailed chart. I've had this for 20 years, and I've got it up here for you to look at. So I want you to just study this for about an hour and a half, and then we'll get, and then we'll move on. No, I'm not going to stay here, but the, the reason I bring this up, and by the way, I can make copies of this for you. It's one of the more detailed ones, and I, I generally line up with it. Um, there's a few things in here that are speculation, of course. But what we're dealing with here is this church age. And this is kind of right here. And when we look at this, or excuse me, right here, I'm a little off. The church age right here. And, and this is where we're living currently, right now. And we understand that there is going to be a moment in time where this event takes place. And I know you can't see all of these little, little verses here. And what I want you to understand about this is that it can be confusing for people when we talk about the return of the Lord, that automatically, and I can tell you as a kid, this is kind of the way I looked at it because I didn't know any better, that the rapture and the second coming are the exact same things, that they're the same event. From this chart, you can kind of see that that's not what we're dealing with here. We've got the rapture of the church happening and then things happening in heaven above. We're not going to talk about them today because we don't have time, but we'll get there. The judgment seat of Christ, what we call the Bema judgment for believers, and this is not judgment of your sin. Those are as far as the east is from the west. They are rewards. And then the marriage supper of the Lamb, which I referenced last week. These are happening in the, in the uh, divine, eternal, heavenly realm. But what we see is a return with Christ here. These are two separate events. Right here we have the seven-year tribulation period that's defined for us, mathematically even, chronology, based on Daniel 9. He tells us that 70th week. But we return with Christ here, and we even see this in Zechariah 14, mentioning that we will come back. He'll come back with his saints. So this kind of gives you an idea. I don't expect you to try to keep track of all of that. But this is a even more, there's hundreds of charts out there to kind of give you an idea or a guide for this. Let me do a real quick comparison here to, to help you understand this, how I believe and why when we look at Scripture and we interpret it and what we'll look at today, that we're dealing with two different events. Now, before I even look at this chart with you, and there's two pages to this, that there are differences. There are similarities in, when, uh, in what's described in Scripture for the rapture of the church. There's similarities to the second coming of Christ. They, there are things that are, are very much alike. Well, they both involve Christ, <laughs> that's for one. And he is doing something supernatural in both. But I'll give you an example of how things can look similar but be separated by time. Here's an example of this. When Christ cleansed the temple, he did this the first time at the very beginning of his ministry. And there were very similar things that happened. He threw them out and he was rushing them out. But in one, he, 
And, and by the way, and the second one was three years later at the very end of his ministry. And you could read them both and think, oh, they must be talking about the same thing. But as you look at it closely, they're not. There's similarities, but they're, they're not exact. In one, he forms a whip. In another, he performs miracles. In another, he teaches. And in one, he doesn't let, them cross, let anyone cross through the temple anymore. And they sound similar because there's similar things happening, but there are differences and they're separated by time. And I think we're dealing with a very similar thing here. There's, there's similarities, but there's more differences than there are similarities. And, and let me give you a few examples of this. We're going to look at these rapture passages here in just a moment, but just to give you an idea before we jump into them. In the rapture, Christ comes in the air. As a matter of fact, we're going to meet him in the air. In the second coming, it's a literal, Zechariah 14, 4, he's, he puts his foot down on the, on the Mount of Olives and it splits in two. We have a great vivid description of this in Revelation 19, but Zechariah 14 gives us a specific as to where that's going to happen and how it's going to happen. So how he comes back is different. Who he's coming back for is different. Clearly in our passages that we'll look at today, he's coming back for the church, for his redeemed, that they're singing songs about this when they get to heaven. He's coming back with us, and in, in according to Revelation 19 and Zechariah 14. So to get us in the first, with us in the second. It's a blessing, considered a blessing, in the three particular passages we'll look at in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, and John 14. It's an encouragement. We, we say these things, talk about these things like I'm going to do today to encourage you, motivate you, and, and get you stirred up because it's a blessing, but that is not how we see the second coming. It is judgment. It's wrath. It's not good. It's not pleasant, and it isn't something you get all excited about and you look forward to as a believer. It's something that's separate. Here it affects just believers. He comes back for the redeemed, for those who are, as we'll see here, dead in Christ, in Christ being redeemed, being one of, the, uh, of those who have been, who've been saved. And this affects both believers and unbelievers. The whole world is going to be affected by this. Let me move on as we go through this. This first section, invisible, invisible in that it's not like necessarily everybody's going to see. There's a lot of debate on this, by the way, as to whether or not people will see a Christian translated, tra changed, transformed into their glorified body and taken up. It, it happens in a twinkling of an eye. Now, the debate is, as we'll look at the text here, is that twinkling of an eye at the change or is it the actual translation, the flying up in the air? So I say that, you know, I stole this chart from, I've had it for years, so I can't remember who I stole it from, but um, the invisible just indicating that maybe it's something happens so instantaneous, people don't see it. They don't, in, the, in the rapture, it's affecting the believer, so we don't know that the unbeliever really knows what's going on. And as a matter of fact, I would argue that they probably don't. And I would also argue that the Antichrist, who will show up on the scene at some point later, will give a deceptive description or explanation for what happened. And it won't be that Jesus came and took all his church. That's not what it will be and took them to heaven. That's not what it will be. We know the second coming, the whole world sees this. Supernaturally, the whole world will see it. Here we see announced by an archangel. By the way, the text says voice of an archangel. Some argue that it's Christ with the voice of an archangel. I think an archangel is involved in it personally. But in the second, it's involving myriads of angels. We see that textually. In the rapture, we have a resurrection happening in that moment. There is not a resurrection specifically at the moment of the second coming. There is resurrection. We will see it 
that comes after that. It's a separate resurrection. Has to do with Israel. Has to do with uh, it. Has to do with believers who have died during the tribulation. These martyrs, and then the rescue of the church. And then specifically, as I've mentioned before, the tribulation period is the time of Jacob's trouble. This is a rescue for Israel. Is I've preached on before here a couple of years ago when we looked at Zechariah 12 through 14 or taught on. So anyway, there are some differences between the two. Some key passages here. Go to John 14. Uh, we, let's see, Pastor I, James covered this maybe a month and a half ago. But let's look at it real quick just to remind ourselves because it's so, so important. And then we'll just very quickly put these together so we can understand what's happening. So John 14. Should be here, this is the upper room, remember where we've been. And notice how he starts. Again, comparing the two. Let not your hearts be troubled. He is trying to encourage his apostles. Their hearts were troubled because of what was pending and they knew something was happening. They didn't understand the whole story, of course. But he says, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, notice he says, I will come again and I will take you to myself. Okay, He's going to take the believer to where he is. Now, where is Christ now? We all know this. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. We, we, I'm not going to do this today, but there are some great comparisons between how the wedding and the wedding feast and the, the wedding structure, especially the Galilean one where Christ was from, how that parallels with what Christ is doing. As a matter of fact, the, 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 the bridegroom would go away for a period of time and build a house attached to his father's house and then at some unknown time would come back and get his bride. We won't take time to look at that, but it's, it's a fascinating study. Again, I'm just trying to prime the pump for you. There, there's an interesting thing to look at here. But anyway, I'm going to take you to be with me. I'll come again, take you to myself where I am. You may be also... And you know where to where I'm going. And then we get into this, this idea of, the, well, we don't know where you're going. And that old idea of, of how Thomas gets into that. Now let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So right off the bat, Jesus promised it. He's going to come and take us to be with him where he is. Okay. Now I want you to know it's not I'm going to come and then be with where you are. I'm going to take you to where I am. Now let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. And by the way... 1 Thessalonians, even though it comes after 1 Corinthians, was written before that. That's why I put them in this order. But, uh, you know, that's not what we're debating here at any rate. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we'll look at, if we have time, which usually means we won't, but 1 Thessalonians 4 is a great passage where we see this particular word, harpazo, translated reptura, Later on, notice the start, chapter 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be an uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Uninformed about those who have died. Those who have, that's a very nice way to say died about believers. We're just temporarily sleeping. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. How does he start? I want to give you some hope. This is exciting. Don't grieve like others do who think, my dead parents who are believers in Christ, I'll never see them again. Or they're going to miss the rapture. I don't want you to think that way. He's trying to give them hope. He's exciting them. Notice this is all our hope. It's all good things. It's a blessing. 
Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we all do, if you're in Christ there, you believe that. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, the dead Christians. For we declare to you by a word from the Lord, Paul got this directly, this is one of these mysteries that was unheard of, unknown in the Old Testament, that he who are, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not proceed. We're not going to go ahead of those who have fallen asleep. He gives us specifics. The Lord himself will descend from heaven, because that's where he's at. John 14, he's gone and he's prepared a place. Descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God. Remember, that sound of a trumpet could be his voice, because we saw that last week. But a trumpet, the voice of an archangel, the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who have put their faith in Christ, who by grace, through faith in Christ alone, put their faith in Christ but have died, they will be resurrected, rise first. We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up, harpazo, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord, and then look how he ends it. Therefore, what? Encourage one another with these words. It's our blessed hope. Encourage one another. Now skip back to 1 Corinthians 15. We won't look at the Second Thessalonians at the moment, or Revelation 3, but that promise I'll, I'll reference. But go to 1 Corinthians 15. Well, let's put these there. The three common ones. And you should know where they are so you, know, you can encourage one another with these words. These are things we should know. This is a mystery. Hopefully you're there. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the, are, are the imperishable. The body you live in right now is corrupting. And if you're over 30, you know it for sure. I mean, it's, there's no doubt about it. Um, it's not great. It's getting worse. And I can't wait for a new one. But it's not just because it's falling apart. The biggest problem with my body and yours is that it is littered and full of sin. And I still struggle with it, and so do you. I don't have to ask you if you do. This book tells me that you do. And I've seen the world and everybody who has ever lived in it, and we all still struggle with that sin nature. That's what he's really talking about here. Yes, it's corrupting and it's falling apart, but it's because of our sin. It's because of our sin, and that fight is real. That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Behold, I tell you a mystery. This is new. We shall not all sleep. It's possible you may not have to die. That's what he's talking about. But we shall all be changed. There's going to be a moment. There's going to be a time. There is going to be a generation of Christians who don't have to experience death. That is incredible to consider. And it could be us. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, this is going to happen so fast. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And talking about this you know, idea of needing to get a new body in, in order to inherit the kingdom, and I won't continue in this. But let's just break this down. What's the promise? From John 14, Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. He could be referring to the New Jerusalem that we'll look at in Revelation 21. Don't even want to make an argument on that. I don't know if that's what he means. He could mean that. Even so, it's incredible from the description of Revelation 21. The New Jerusalem is an incredible, enormous, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles high, I want to say 200 feet thick uh, uh, walls. A, each, each of the, each of the uh, gates are made of a single pearl. Imagine a 1,500 mile high building and how big the gate might be. And a single gate is a pearl. This is supernatural. He may be referring to that. But he's just talking about heaven in general, where he is. 
And he promised that he'd come back and get us. So Jesus says it, he's going to do it. I, I want you to think of it that, that, that's definitive. Jesus says it, he'll do it. What happens here? What's, the, what's this moment like? Well, the moment is going to look like this for the believer. The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout of the archangel and a trumpet blast. Do, does that mean the whole world hears it? I doubt it. But you will. You will. You will. Because his sheep hear his voice and they know it, don't, don't they? So you will. And this is going to be an exciting moment. And uh, have you ever had that happen? Those of you who know these passages and have, have thought about it, when you hear something super loud somewhere out of nowhere, you think, whoa, was that it? Is this happening? Is this... It, 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 there's, there's been times where I'm sure Christ has laughed at me from heaven, not just in that situation, but no, it's going to be better than that. It's not just a loud noise, but we're going to hear it, and it's going to be an amazing thing. The dead in Christ are going to be affected first. Why them first? Well, they had to die, for one, and you didn't. If this happens in our time, timeline or in our, our, our particular generation, the, you don't have to experience the death uh, that comes to all of us because of sin, but they did. So the dead in Christ, those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, I want you to understand who the dead in Christ are, because if you're not that today, today's your day. Today's your day. If you want to experience what this is, this incredible thing that is the world thinks we're crazy for believing in, and I'm telling you, it's going to happen, this is how you get there. You believe in Jesus Christ. You, you confess, you repent, you believe in all that this book says about who Jesus is. All of it. His perfection, his deity, his, his death and his resurrection and the fact that he did this to save sinners and, and to seek and save those who are lost. That is what we want you to do and want you to believe in today. Christ wants it more. But they will rise. They will be resurrected and changed and they get that first. Then what happens next? Number three, the living Christians will be changed without experiencing death. Changed means giving glorified bodies. We'll talk about this here in just a moment. And and follow after the resurrected dead in Christ. Now, we already know that we'll be caught up in the air, it says. So he doesn't come down to planet Earth. This isn't the Zechariah 14. We're meeting him where he's at in the air. And, and, and you're thinking, how can I do that? You can't, but, but he can. <laughs> and he's going to give you a body that has that ability. Now, I want you to notice something. That change is specifically defined for us in these two passages. All Christians, dead or alive, so the dead in Christ who are resurrected, but the living Christians who are experiencing this in the moment, according to 1 John 3, and I want to look at both of them, are going to be given a body like Christ. Okay, so go to 1 John chapter 3 real quick with me. 1 John 3, near Revelation. 1 John 3, yikes. 1 John 3. And I want to hustle through some of this. And take a look at this. 1 John 3, verse 2. Notice what John says, beloved Christian, the church. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. This is great, what we're experiencing now. Holy Spirit's within us, but we're still fighting that fight. The flesh is still there. The sin nature is still there. But look what he says. But we know that when he appears, when he appears, we shall be like him. Okay, we like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So the motivation is this is going to happen. Try to live this godly life now. But we specifically see from John that when he appears, we're going to be like him. We're going to get a body like his. Philippians 3, 21. Go to that. So go left in your Bibles. 
Philippians 3, 21, Paul says a very similar thing. At this moment, when we're changed, what does that change look like? We're going to start in verse 20. Is, and by the way, the context of what Paul's talking about here is having our minds on things above. Okay, So remember, what I ta- told you at the very beginning is we got all kinds of trivial, t- temporary things that distract us here. Paul's trying to get the mind of the believer on things that are above and the reason for that is because that is where our eternity is. And notice how he kind of culminates this, this discussion. Verse 20, he says, um, and just ahead of that in verse 19, you know, we don't want to set our minds on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? This is our anticipation. Who is, will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So defined by both John and, 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 and Paul, you're going to get a body like Christ's eternal, not corrupted anymore, sinless, without even the, the sniff of temptation, uh, you're going to be able to do the things that Christ, I think, I believe, you're going to be able to do some of the things that Christ did in his resurrected body that we see in those 40 days after the resurrection. I, I think that there's going to be a potential that we're, we're going to be able to you know, walk through walls and obviously we're going to fly because it's going to happen right here and God is going to do this. But again, there's a lot of things you can think about like, whoa, boy, that'll be really neat and that'll be really cool. I'm going to bring you back to what this is all about. This is not about you. It's about his glory. He's doing this for his glory. What you couldn't achieve, because remember what John says, you need to purify yourselves as he is pure now. And boy, we fail at that every day. What Christ is going to do on this day, this day of all days, He is going to take away that sin nature of yours that you've been fighting since the day you started breathing, and only he could do that. And he does that for his glory. And we are going to remember what we're going to do in Revelation 5. We're going to sing his praises for doing what? Ransoming us. Paying the price we couldn't pay. Redeeming us. There's a reason why those elders are singing a song. Because now they know. Now you know. Really know. We only get a glimpse of what Christ has done for us here when we're with him in his, in his presence and we understand the sensation of having this new glorified body like his, we'll really understand what praising the Lord is all about, won't we? Boy, I can imagine. You think, what am I going to do? I don't care what I'm going to do in heaven. I'm going to praise him because he's the reason I'm there. You guys can feel that. I'm sure you can feel that. What's going to happen right after this? Well, it's going to be mayhem down here, I'm guessing, because imagine what will, what will happen when millions, maybe billions, we don't know how many true believers there are. I'm not going to speculate right now. But this is going to cause some panic, and it's going to set things up for what we're going to study starting in chapter 6, where just this world is turned upside down. And there is no longer what the Bible speaks of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There's no longer a restraining force that I believe is the Holy Spirit and it's working through the church to restrain this evil. There's no longer that available. I'm going to read you a quote to end this to get us a better understanding of this. And uh, There's a lot of things I didn't cover today and that's just the way it goes. But I want to read you a quote from maybe one of the best particular books on this subject. And it's uh, Dr. Reynolds Showers. He wrote a book called Maranatha. And if, it, if you don't have it, get it. I, I bought my copy in the late 90s. And uh, 
It holds. Boy, does it hold. And I think he wrote it in the early 90s, maybe the 80s. I, I, I'm not sure, but great resource and encouragement. Here's what he says. The imminent coming of Christ should have an incredible practical effect on the lives of individual Christians and the church as a whole. It should have an effect on you. Why? The fact that the glorified Holy Son of God could step through the door of heaven at any moment is intended by God to be the most pressing, listen carefully, incessant motivation for holy living and aggressive ministry, including missions, evangelism, Bible teaching, and the great cure for lethargy and apathy. It should make a major difference in every Christian's values, actions, priorities, and goals. Today, like now, as you think about this and consider this, the eternal perspective should be on your mind. Here's what Paul says in Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, okay, he's going to do this, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Here's what Paul says. Perspective. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and you're going to have them. You, some of you are having them now. You've, you've experienced them in the past. Let me prom, I'm going to give you a little promise. You're going to have some tomorrow too. Whatever those are, they're not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let me recenter us again. He's not talking about your glory. You're going to be glorified. This is the glory that's going to be revealed to us. It's Christ's glory, and you get to experience it. Notice he says that he ends this passage for the creation of the world, the creation itself, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And I'll end with this, talking about our blessed hope. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. We don't lose heart. Remember, this is all encouraging. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. I'm going to try not to get emotional. But when my brother-in-law passed away, and he told myself this, and he told my wife this, and it's, it's probably the greatest thing I ever heard him say. And, you know, they've written books about him, and it's recent and they, that people talk about him. But he was a shell. And if you, you, he never came, I, I can't remember if he ever visited here or not, or if any of you ever saw him. But he was a 320-pound power lifter. Won championships for lifting weights all over this country. Literally all over the country. Strongest guy I ever lifted with. Humbled me every time I went into the weight room with him. But here's what he said. He was dying. I'm not even going to look at my wife. He was dying, and he was maybe 150 pounds. He said to, to Mindy, I've never been stronger. His, his body was wasting away. But let me finish the passage. The light, he considered it a light momentary affliction. His cancer is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparisons. As we look not at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Yeah. So, yeah, your football team may have lost last night. Mine probably going to lose today, too. Who cares? You may have cancer more seriously. You may have lost a husband, a wife, a child, a grandchild. You may have lost your job. Things may be going as bad as they can go down here, but those things are vapors, transient. Our minds are on the eternal and the absolute truth of what we just studied today. You will be in that throne room. You will see what John saw. You will experience it all because of God's glory, and he loves you.
And you should live that way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this incredible encouragement. We thank you for the the truth of your word and the blessed hope that we have. And we're called to encourage one another with these things. We're called to be believers that are changed and different. And we can't just allow these promises that you have made to, un, to, to, to cause us to be unaffected. We can't allow that. Your Holy Spirit is, is convicting us continually, driving us continually, and we know it. And we praise you for it. But we confess that we don't always live that way. I pray that this week... As we study your word individually, and each of us should, convict us if we don't, that as you teach us through those things, that we continue to encourage one another, but we live these holy lives, that we, we purify ourselves as you are pure, knowing that there will be a day where we don't have to fight that fight anymore. I pray that we can, we can do as all that we can to represent you well down here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.